0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is episode 330, Athelred, The Purge. This show is ad-free due to members' support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to David, Michael, and Daniel for signing up already. The court of Athelred had already turned over three times during his reign. First, we began with his regency council. Then, when he took full power, he replaced that regency council with his young friends and corrupt enablers. Then, in the 990s, the old guard reasserted itself, along with the powerful wolf dynasty from the Midlands. And now, in 1006, the court was turning over again. The Old Guard, having returned in what looks like an attempt to get the kingdom back on track, was now legitimately really old. Queen Elfrith's faction was dying out. Uncle Lordwolf, Cousin Athelweird, even Wolfridge Spot, and of course, Queen Elfrith. they were all dead. And with them went the last semblance of competency in statecraft. But I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Old English politics was full contact, and even though Mom's faction did a pretty good job at stabilizing things when they were in power, this group wasn't exactly cuddly. When they ousted the previous court, they did it brutally, and only Elfridge of Hampshire appears to have walked away with his life. Similarly, the old guard wasn't altruistic. They got pretty rich while they controlled the king. But, even for all their grift and self-interested grasping, the old guard did manage to keep the train from coming completely off the rails. And that meant that with the loss of this group, well, the kingdom was in a tight spot, especially given the return of the Viking threat. But a look at the witness list does reveal that at least a few of the old factions still remained. The first and the highest ranked of those who remained living was Athelmar, He was a cousin of the royal dynasty, and he was the son of old Elderman Athelweird the chronicler. Additionally, Elfhelm, who had been appointed as the Elderman of York, was still alive and kicking, and he was part of that same Mercian dynasty that rose to power over the last decade that included Wulfrich Spot. Furthermore, Elfhelm's son, Wulf remained a fixture in court, and apparently he was the second highest-ranking minister in the witness lists, appearing right after Athelmar, and then the name that follows right after Wolfheya was Wolfgat, who was likely his cousin and part of that same Mercian dynasty. And actually, you've heard of Wolfgat before. Do you remember when Elfrich of Hampshire lost power and his son was blinded and killed? And then this new guy came in and married Elfrich's son's widow, and he nicked the family lands in the process before Elfrich had a chance to lay claim to them. Well, that new guy was Wolfgat. So, while most of the prominent members of the old faction, you know, Mom, Uncle Ordwolf, Cousin Athelweird, while they were all dead, there still were remnants of that old order. And they were remnants with real power and who had every reason to want to maintain their control over the king. But with the power block weakened, there was room for new ambitious players. And one of them was a man called Edric Strayona. And in 1006, Edric had been in court for about four years, as far as we can tell from the records. Which means he was pretty much a newbie here. Furthermore, he appears to have been from a relatively average birth. One of the most detailed accounts of him comes from John of Worcester. And John claims that Edric was the son of a Mercian Thane, who held lands in Shropshire and Herefordshire. And there are no contemporary records that even mention Edric's dynastic connections. And in a world obsessed with dynastic power, that's telling. And what it's telling us is that Edric Strayona was essentially a nobody who had a father who could, at best, be described as Mercian middle management. And yet, once Mom's faction was broken, and the powerful Mercian leader Wulfrich Spott was dead, suddenly this guy started moving rapidly through the halls of power. Adding to the mystery of this, the scribes become particularly tight-lipped about this man. And the best that we get are outlines of what appear to be a hefty amount of palace intrigue. Somehow, it seems that the king was heavily influenced by this new guy. And this new guy had some ideas of how to use that influence. First, there was the low-hanging fruit, Wolfren's dynasty. These people had only risen to serious courtly power in the 990s. Prior to that, they were a regional Mercian power block. And that Mercian aspect was important because to the West Saxon court, they were foreign. And more importantly, they weren't part of Athelred's dynasty. Furthermore, there was the way that the Wolf clan had risen to power. They had come to court along with Mom and the old guard. And the evidence of how this happened indicates that it might have involved some pretty heavy strong arming of Athelred, not to mention the murder of a few of his closest former friends. So if you were looking to establish a seat for yourself at the table and you wanted to secure it by eliminating your rivals, you know, hypothetically, the Mercian wolf dynasty wouldn't be a bad place to start. And if you were also Mercian, and possibly from a rival, lower-ranked dynasty, well... (laughs) And right on cue, in 1006, Edric Strayona stops appearing in the witness lists. And not because he'd been ousted from court. Rather, in 1006, he was busy, because he had left court to go home. Specifically, to the Burr of Shrewsbury in his family lands in Shropshire. And according to John of Worcester, Edric took a particular interest in the town butcher, a man named Godwinna Porthund, which translates in modern English to Godwin the town dog. And John tells us that Edric showered this town butcher with gifts and also with promises. And in short order, Edric Strayona had made himself a friend, a very indebted friend. Because remember, for the Anglo-Saxons, gifts gave power to the giver. He was buying social influence. But why buy social power if you aren't gonna spend it? And so, Edric prepared a great feast at his family's residence in Shrewsbury. And he invited Elderman Elfhelm of York, who was a prominent member of the Wolf Clan, to attend. And if there was any rivalry between their families, It was all forgotten because when Elderman Elfhelm arrived, Edric embraced him as a close, trusted friend. And why wouldn't he? Feasts were time for revelry and for bonding. Feasts were the glue that held English noble society together. While much of the old Anglo-Saxon honor culture had fallen away, there were still the feasts. And sure, you might not find as many young nobles making oaths about bringing victory on the battlefield as you might have back in the days of Offa and Penda. But the feasting culture and the connections that can be formed by literally spending days eating and drinking with your fellow nobles were still a very important part of how the powerful stayed in power. And so they feasted and they drank and they feasted some more. And then they went to bed. They were drunk and full. The next day, they got up, and they feasted, and they drank, and they kept feasting and drinking until finally being forced to return to bed from exhaustion. Then, after three or four days of this, Edric suggested that he and Alfhelm indulge in the second favorite pastime of the nobility hunting. Because what better way to shake off that brutal mead hangover than getting some fresh air and stabbing a few woodland creatures? And Elfhelm eagerly agreed. But what Elfhelm didn't realize was that Godwinna Porthund, Edric's bribed butcher, was out there waiting. And once Elfhelm followed Edric Straona deep into the woods, Godwinna leapt out of his hiding place and killed the elderman. And then John of Worcester tells us that not too long after the murder of Elderman Elfhelm, the king ordered the blinding of Elfhelm's two sons. The powerful wolf Haya, and his brother, Ulfgeat So now the Wolf dynasty was all but broken. And as for that final remaining powerful member of the Wolf dynasty, Wolfgeat, you know, the one who had earlier outmaneuvered Elfridge of Hampshire and usurped his rights to inheritance. Well, Payback's a bitch, because the king ordered the seizure of all of Wolfgeat's lands. In one brutal lurch, the Mercian dynasty, which had risen to power in the 990s, had been virtually eliminated. And orchestrating that move was this unknown son of a minor Mercian thane, Edric Strayona. (laughs) And I guess now is when I should tell you the meaning of his name. Strayona probably sounds familiar to your ears. Like, perhaps it means strong, but that's not what it means. It also sounds like it might be strenuous, which is a little closer to the mark. And if you think strain, you almost have it. Edric Strayona, like Athelred Unred, didn't have a kind nickname. His name, translated to modern English, is Edric the Grasper. And fair play to Edric. Even though he'd started as a relative nobody, he'd managed to rocket himself up to the upper echelons of power leapfrogging past the myriad nobles who had come from much more important dynasties, but who had also not managed to capitalize on the norm-violating, cutthroat nature of Athelred's court with his same degree of effectiveness. So if you admire ambition, this guy had it. And this rise of Edric signals the next turn in Athelred's court. Because now that mom and most of her friends were dead, the court of Athelred was returning to his previous programming. Screw geopolitics, screw diplomacy, screw the realm. It was time to get paid. And that change couldn't have come at a worse time, because King Swain Forkbeard was still out there. And if Athelred and his courtiers thought that he left the island due to some kind of fear of the English fird, or because of divine intervention on their behalf, they were sorely mistaken. Swain left because England was so badly mismanaged that it was mired in famine, and thus, there wasn't much left for him to plunder. But that was last year. And the benefits of a food economy is that you can regrow your money. And as this new year turned, the peasants had re-sown their fields and the livestock had bred. Which meant that there was once again food that an enterprising Viking king could take to use to sustain his army on campaign. You know, as they sought out other, shinier goods to steal. So... As King Athelred and his new buddy Edric waged war against the powerful Midlands Wolf Dynasty, King Swain and his army set sail, prepared to make war upon England. And in summer of 1006, he and his army landed on the shores of Sandwich. Once disembarked, they ravaged and burned their way through the region. And they were apparently left unchecked for quite some time because it wasn't until late summer that King Athelred finally called the full fyrd of Wessex and Mercia to deal with the attack. That meant that Forkbeard had been partying by himself for months, and accounts referred to Swain as occupying Sandwich the entire time, launching raids throughout the region. So the devastation must have been widespread. But finally, the English army was called, but it only came from Mercia and Wessex. There was nothing from the north, and that's likely because they had problems of their own. King Malcolm of Scotland had invaded Northumbria, and he brought his Scottish army south to the newly founded city of Durham. And there, they laid siege to it. Now, this was the first reliable record of Malcolm II's reign. And Malcolm, as a new king, needed to demonstrate his prowess in war. So it's likely that he brought his forces south as part of a Scottish tradition whose term literally translates to royal prey. And Durham, being located near the Scottish border, made rather attractive prey, especially considering that it was under the dominion of High Reeve of Bamborough, sometimes also referred to as Elderman Waltheof, And Waltheof was old, really old, far too old to go to war. And if Malcolm had spies and informants in England, he might have also known that King Athelred was much too busy dealing with Swain to be able to spare any time or attention for Durham. It was a ripe target. But Malcolm was still making a miscalculation because Northumbria wasn't Wessex. They weren't afraid to fight. And while Hyreve Walthyeth was old, his son wasn't. So taking his father's responsibility on his shoulders, Utred, son of Waltheof, called the warriors from his father's territory, which functionally was the old kingdom of Bernicia. And he also called the warriors from the old kingdom of York, which suggests he had considerable influence in the northern regions. And in doing so, virtually all of the fighting forces of Northumbria had answered the call of Uhtred of Bambora. And if you're a fan of The Last Kingdom by Bernard Cornwell, your ears have probably perked up. And Cornwell wrote a note at the end of his book, which states that the real Uhtred, the son of Waltheof, was intended to be the descendant of the fictional Uhtred son of Uhtred, who's the main character in his series. So, bring that to your next pub quiz. And if you want to imagine Uhtred as having luxurious flowing hair and abs for days, feel free. But... Hot or not, this real Uhtred had some work to do. He had taken up the mantle of leadership, and he now stood at the head of a massive army, and he was leading them north because they were going to break Malcolm's siege and free Durham. Now, unfortunately, our accounts of the battle that followed are not very good. They're contradictory. They can't get their dating quite right. And we know that there are several sieges of Durham, and that's led scholars to wonder if the scribes got their sieges and dates mixed up. So, rather than diving into the debates regarding how exactly this happened i'm going to give you the clearest account of malcolm ii's siege of durham in 1006 and it comes from the annals of ulster quote the scots were defeated and a great number of their nobles left dead end quote that's it and this by the way is part of why the bhp is so england focused lately we are slaves to our sources And the north simply didn't have many reliable or detailed records that survived to our era. But what we do know is that Uhtred, son of Waltheof, had defeated the army of King Malcolm II of Scotland. And he did it so thoroughly that we're told that the Scots lost a great number of not just their soldiers, but their nobles in the exchange. This victory had put Uhtred on the map. Meanwhile, in the south, Athelred was hoping to pull off something similar. And with the full army of Wessex and Mercia mustered and ready for war, that should be within reach. So he issued the order, and they marched. Swain had ravaged the south unabated for months. But now that would come to an end. The English army marched straight to the lands that Forkbeard had been burning. And when they arrived, well, they found that the Vikings had already moved on. So they marched to the next region that was beset by the raiders. And by the time that they got there, well, Swain and his army had moved on again. Time and time again, the English army failed to catch up with Swain. Time and time again, this would-be avenging army would crest a hill, only to find the village they were supposed to protect was already a smoking ruin and its peasants were hauled off as slaves. And that's because Swain wasn't leading an army of conscripts. He had an army of experienced raiders. And even more importantly, he had dracars. The English simply couldn't counter the speed of Forkbeard's hit-and-run strikes, no matter how much they tried. But try they did, which meant that the whole southern army was on the march. And that meant that the fields were short-handed, which would have seriously cut into the amount of food that could be harvested. And that couldn't come at a worse time, because this English army was chasing Swain in autumn. In fact, we're told that they were chasing him The whole of autumn. All of the harvest season. That was a problem. And it was a problem with cascading effects. You see, not only was the army made up of farmers who could now not harvest, they were also men who needed to eat. And don't forget that the Great Famine was just last year. So there would have been little to no reserves to draw upon. And that meant the army would need to forage as they went. And the main difference between foraging and pillaging is the spelling. The Chronicle details this problem rather clearly. Quote, They were out on military service the whole autumn, yet it availed no whit more than it had done before. For in spite of it all, the Danish army went about as it pleased, and the English levy caused the people of the country every sort of harm, so that they profited neither from the native army nor the foreign army. End quote. And so, thanks to this failed military campaign, the Great Famine raged on and was almost certainly exacerbated. Eventually, when winter approached, King Swain brought his army to the Isle of Wight, and the English army returned to their homes. This had been an unmitigated disaster. And honestly, it would have been better if Athelred hadn't done anything at all. But at least the campaigning season was over, and the English country folk had a chance for a breather. The Viking threat was over. Ah, come on. You didn't think it would end here, did you? This is King Swain Forkbeard. He wasn't just going to chill out and burn the Yuletide log. He had work to do. And first, if they were going to have a nice winter, they needed to make sure they had plenty of supplies. I mean, what's the point of enjoying the feasting season if you can't, you know, feast? So we're told that they, quote, procured for themselves everywhere whatever they needed, end quote. And considering that the Isle of Wight was so close to Hampshire and Sussex, my guess is those territories in particular were regularly providing feasting supplies, likely at sword point. But winter can drag, even when you're feasting. And eventually, Swain and his men grew restless. So they crossed the narrow stretch of water and entered Hampshire proper. And this time, they weren't there to quickly steal some food and drink from poor Unfirth's farm. This time, they were there to raid. And as one scribe tells us, quote, Then towards Christmas, they betook themselves to the entertainment waiting them, out through Hampshire, into Berkshire, to Reading, and always they observed their ancient custom, lighting their beacons as they went. End quote. The entertainment being raiding, and the beacons were the English town's. And done with laying waste to much of Wessex, they then turned to Wallingford and burned it down. Then they spent an evening in Chelsea, pillaged their way to Ashdown, and continued to Cuck Hamsley. And not only was this good holiday fun, it was also certain to catch the attentions of the English nobility, because Forkbeard was raiding the site of one of Alfred's greatest battles. The message behind this destruction was clear, but there was also a subtext to it. You see, Forkbeard's raiders were moving freely through Oxfordshire, and the English had, quote, proudly threatened that if they went to Cuck Hamsley, they would never get to the sea, end quote. It turns out that even in the midst of the famine and the infighting, the English nobility were still out there talking some serious shit. And their noble mouths were writing checks the English herd couldn't cash. Because Swain was an OG Viking king. He didn't talk, he acted. So, he went to Cuckhamsley, Hamsley, and he took that town, over 50 miles from the sea and his longships, and he occupied it. More than that, he occupied the royal buildings of the Shire Court that were there. If Athelred and his court wanted to step up and make threats, the Scandinavians were only too happy to take them up on their promises. And so they waited for the English to do something about it. But the days rolled on, and there was no word of an approaching English force. So eventually, Swain Forkbeard, realizing that no one was coming, grabbed up his men, and kept moving, and continued raiding. But after a time, they got word that an English army had been mustered, and it was about 30 or 40 miles away at the Kennet. Better late than never, I suppose. And the scribes don't mention who was leading this force, but it wasn't Athelred. He was busy. But this was an army, and that was better than nothing, So Forkbeard and his Vikings marched to Kennet to meet the English. And upon seeing Forkbeard's merry band, the English army broke and ran. Standing once again upon a victorious field, Swain and his army loaded up all their booty and they began marching back to the sea. They marched through Berkshire, past Newbury, down through Hampshire, and they passed Winchester, the ancient capital of Wessex, the site of the cults of the House of Wessex and the power center of the crown. And these Vikings, loaded up with English booty, paraded right past Athelred's capital city. And all the nobles of Winchester could do is watch and pray that they would just pass. There would be no challenge to Swain's army coming from Winchester. And you could almost imagine Swain winking at the people who were peering over the walls as he passed and boarded his ships. Meanwhile, as Swain was raiding his way through the kingdom and flaunting the weakness of the English crown, Athelred was over 100 miles away in Shropshire. And he was focused on exactly what you'd imagine. While the kingdom was burning, Athelred, far inland and away from danger, quote, received there his food rents in the Christmas season. End quote. He was taxing. And when word of the raiding reached his court, the king didn't raise an army. He didn't go to meet swain instead the king sent a messenger and asked for a truce with enough time that he could gather a Danegeld. and he further offered that he would provide swain and his army with quote food from throughout england end quote and honestly it would have had to have been from throughout england because the south was already picked clean but swain agreed and athelred and his counselors set about heavily taxing their subjects during christmas and by early 1007 The Dane Guild was arranged, and Swain was given 36,000 pounds of gold and silver in exchange for a promise that he would leave and never come back. And then, Athelred got back to doing what he did best, handing out titles and lands to his friends. Now Uhtred, who had done such a good job dealing with the siege of Durham, deserved a reward. And King Athelred, who wasn't one for observing conventions, declared that even though Uhtred's father was still alive... It would be Uhtred who would now rule Bambura, and he didn't stop there. You see, Uhtred was exactly the kind of northern noble that Athelred liked. He was Anglo-Saxon rather than Anglo-Dane, and thanks to Edric's assassination plot, the eldermancy of York was vacant, and someone would need to fill it. So Athelred granted it to Uhtred, and in doing so, he made the son of Hyreiv-Wulfioph, the elderman of a united Northumbria meaning that he was now one of the most powerful individuals in the kingdom. And I'm sure it hadn't escaped the king's notice that, given the nature of this elevation, Uhtred was in a tenuous position with large portions of his lands, and thus he would be quite reliant on crown support. But he saved the best for last. The Eldermancy of Mercia had been dead for nearly 30 years. I mean, Wolfrid's spot had been running Mercia, but he didn't have the actual title. That title was gone. And Athelred decided it was time to bring it back. He needed someone to command the sizable Mercian military machine. And he knew exactly the type, and he knew exactly the person who should hold it. That son of the low-ranked Mercian Thane, who not only helped him get rid of Athelhelm, he'd even hosted him for Christmas. So he's going to give that title to his new bestie, Edric Strayona. (laughs) If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at theverticiousfreepodcast at gmail dot com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, all over the place, and you can find links to everything at the dot com. Thanks for listening.